0: This podcast is brought to you by Formkeep, form endpoints for designers and developers. No iframes, JavaScript embeds, or CSS overrides. Try out our sandbox mode before you buy at formkeep.com.
1: Okay, I'm recording.
0: Okay, I am too. Cool. We have to say cool things now. Say Something cool. worth recording. Um, well, <laughs> so much pressure.
1: Well, we could say we could say hello. <laughs> hi sean hi lila Nice. you got it you got it um yeah i was saying earlier that in a lot of cultures it's pronounced layla so i'm used to people calling me layla and i'm i'm pretty cool with it
0: i think i've just randomly switched back and forth every time every time we've interacted over the last couple of years
1: yeah yeah I, that's that's acceptable too like either and either i do that yeah yeah um how's life how's it going
0: uh life is busy diesel has been going nuts since we shipped oh yeah yeah
1: so when exactly did you ship
0: uh we shipped 0.1 during thanksgiving i think right
1: right right yeah Yeah, i remember the last time i spoke with you was i think when we recorded sometime before then so you mentioned it in the last episode i recorded with you yeah and then you shipped it
0: yep shipped it i have stickers now
1: whoa whoa oh, oh those are awesome
0: yeah, and the website is uh, is going up soon. That's great. I did a, a poor job with the naming, apparently, because uh, I forgot to check if the .io domain was around. Mm. And it turns out there's actually a Python library called Diesel. Oh, really? And they have the .io domain. Oh man! But the cool thing about Rust is that our file extension is .rs, and there is a top level domain .rs, which is for the Republic of Serbia. Really? So uh, we have our we have our own domain, but um. Apparently, filing name server requests takes f- forever with that registry, mm-hmm. and I forgot to do that until yesterday, so it's going to be a few days before the website goes up.
1: Oh um that's when you said forever, I was thinking like months, but that's not no. That bad. <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: but like you know days for basically a file change
1: right, right well, that's cool that so it's rust dot well sorry, it will be diesel dot r s
0: it will be diesel.rs. By the time this goes out, it should be up. Nice. Um, I had I had Corwin in in the Denver office uh, do the design for me.
1: Very cool. Very cool. So you say that it's going nuts. Um, so actually, first I should say that I know very little about Rust. I basically know. I mean, I've like read the Wikipedia page a couple times, and I've heard people <laughs> talk about it. And what I've heard one of my friends describe it as solving a problem he doesn't want to have which I thought was funny. (laughs) But um, this is a friend who mostly writes Python, I think. Right. Yeah, but I definitely don't know that much about Rust. I have played around with Haskell, so I think some some of the conventions and the approaches in Rust might not be totally alien to me because I have some familiarity with Haskell. And one thing I definitely don't think I... Maybe I should know, because you've probably discussed this on the bike shed before, but I don't remember why you decided to write an ORM for Rust in the first place, because Rust is described as a systems language.
0: Okay, uh, so I think it is kind of hilarious and awesome that a language that's most often, like, you know, it's, it's a systems language, it's most often pegged as a replacement for C. Yep and yet even with very little uh knowledge like one of the things that you know is that one of the best languages to be familiar with to work well in Rust is Haskell <laughs> which is about as far from C as you can possibly get. Yes. Yeah. And that sort of gets into I think where Rust can go and and how it's a little bit miscategorized. Not not that not that systems programming language is a poor category for it to be in, but that You know, the main selling points you always hear about with it are performance and memory safety, which are both good things. I mean, nobody's ever been like, oh, I hate that language, it's too performant, (laughs) or give me some more segfaults, yeah! (laughs) But like... Coming from it as a Rubyist, right? I don't care about any of the either of those things because mm-hmm. uh, I write Ruby, which is not exactly the fastest language. And memory safety is just assumed. Like it's it's cool that it's there, but I wouldn't look at it seriously if it wasn't there. Because coming from garbage collected languages, it's just assumed that memory safety is going to be a thing,
1: right? And that you uh, don't have to think about it,
0: right? Um, So the thing that attracted me to Rust was its type system. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why, uh, for those who might be wondering why Haskell is a a good language to know coming at it, because it's a very strong, very statically typed language with a type system that is in many ways similar to Haskell's. It's a little bit less powerful in certain places. Um, Specifically, there's a few things that we're hoping to fix at some point in the future. Like what? Um, So essentially, the the way we handle uh, inheritance and code reuse... So, um, or not in- inheritance is the wrong term, but but basically code reuse mm-hmm. uh, and interfaces, right? So, in a language like Java, you have an interface, and then when you declare your class, you say I'm implementing that interface, and the interface says you have to declare you have to implement these methods, and then uh, it's it's effectively a form of inheritance. And when you uh, look at languages like Haskell, the way they uh, perform code reuse is with type classes. So, uh, you have a type class whatever, and to uh, implement that type class you have to implement those methods and then you say, for type A implement this type class mm-hmm. now it's, a, it, it's significantly better than interfaces for a number of reasons uh, number one, the implementation of the interface is separated out from the declaration of, of the data structure itself whether or not you can actually completely independently implement something, uh, which is sometimes referred to as an orphan implementation, where it's like, there's library A, which defines this type class, and there's library B, which defines this data structure, and then library C, which is not related to either of those, I'm going to implement...
1: That interface uh, for that data structure.
0: Right. And and for languages that have type class-esque systems, whether or not orphan implementations are allowed... It varies. In Rust, we just flat out disallow them. And then in languages where they are allowed, how you go about potentially disambiguating can change as well. Because as soon as you allow orphan implementations, right, two completely unrelated libraries can implement the same trait for the same data structure. Mm -hmm. So that's part of it. Another part of it is that you can write much more generic implementations of interfaces. So for example, uh, so these are called traits in Rust. And they work essentially the same as as Haskell's type classes. And in Diesel, I have two traits one's called expression and another one's called as expression and um i have an implementation written that for any type t where t implements expression here's an implementation of as expression and then i don't have to go have that same boilerplate implementation of return self for every single data structure that implements uh, expression whereas with traditional object-oriented inheritance you would Anyway, that's the biggest way in which they're similar, is that they're both very strong, uh, very strong, very statically typed. They both have similar types of genericism, and their uh, code-sharing structure is based around type classes rather than interfaces or inheritance.
1: Yep, makes sense.
0: And so in a lot of ways, I look at Rust as sort of a more practical Haskell. Mm-hmm, okay. Like, it's got a lot of the same benefits of the type system, yeah. but it doesn't even try to enforce functional purity. In fact, it very specifically... Doesn't. I don't want to say I don't yeah. want to say avoids it, but like yeah, it's just very p- purity. Functional purity is not a uh, priority. Priority of yeah. this, and
1: yeah, that's something I noticed too. Is that it's it's always described as multi paradigm, and that you know it can be as object oriented as, as you want, but it is also functional. So that that also sounds kind of overwhelming. Like how do you write Rust correctly?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, uh, how do you write Ruby correctly?
1: Fair, fair yeah because you
0: could say the exact same thing about Ruby
1: yeah no you're right
0: you're right it does map you know yeah so there's a number of things I mean the standard library for first of all is just is pure, is written in pure rust and a, a lot of the uh paradigms for like correct rust have been established through
1: in that code base
0: yeah in the in that code base and and the other thing is object orientation and uh and functional programming I don't think those two things are in any way like at odds with each other yeah they it's don't... Not that you have to have one or the other
1: right they don't need to be mutually exclusive
0: and rust isn't so much object oriented in that it has syntactic sugar that lets it pretend that it's object oriented mm. but it's only really object oriented in the sense that you can do thing dot method but that's just sugar for going and finding nested under the same namespace a function that takes self as the first argument mm-hmm. um, and you can always do the other form
1: so back to my question about why you decided to build an orm for rust why did you decide to build a NoRM for Rust?
0: Right. So that's the thing, is that I think the exciting thing about Rust is its type system. Mm-hmm. And I think it makes it a very pleasant language to work in. And right now, it's be, it's kind of been shoehorned into this, if you're doing things you would otherwise do in C or C++, do them in Rust, because Rust is performant kind of niche. And I'm trying to give it legs beyond that.
1: I see. Okay. So you find it, you enjoy working with it. You, you think right. it's a fun language to write in. And you want it to be a um, viable to i don't know i'm assuming make web applications with it right okay. so that's
0: where this that's where all this started was that you Katz and i decided to work on a web framework in rust right. and then an orm is a nice piece of that that you can do entirely independent of the rest of the framework
1: yep and then plug it in later
0: right and um, the the work on the actual web framework now has has, has started in, in in full swing but that'll probably be another five or six months before that's really out.
1: Right. So with diesel, my assumption is that you're adhering to the active record pattern. But I was wondering if you're deviating from that at all.
0: No. No, I'm not. I'm not. So this is not like a port of Active Record to Rust, which a lot of people assumed that was what I was going to do. Because I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense that they would assume that. But no, like I really wanted to come at this uh, as what do I think a Rusty ORM looks like.
1: Mm-hmm. But just to clarify, I don't. I sorry, I didn't mean a port of the the Ruby gem Active Record. I meant an implementation of the Active Record design pattern.
0: Right. Well, it's it's also not an implementation of the Active Record design okay. pattern. Good. Um, no, if anything, it is probably closer to the data mapper pattern, Mm -hmm. but like those are two boxes that don't really give as many constraints on what your API actually looks like as people like to think. So it's probably closer to that, but it doesn't necessarily fit into either one particularly well.
1: And you're not explicitly like thinking of those patterns and trying to adhere to them or trying to think about when they work and when they don't work. You're nope. just trying to define some interfaces that you think are good.
0: Yeah. Uh, so we have crates.io, which is uh, our version of rubygems.org. Mm-hmm. And it's got a big JSON API written in Rust. And it's actually a surprisingly large app. And it's very old and has a lot of code that could use some heavy refactoring. But I've sort of used that as my fake you know, use case to try and, and examine what these design choices end up meaning in a real world app that isn't just me going and building a blog with it. Because I can do that, but that's not going (laughs) to give me, and I'll I'll end up with Rails, basically. Like, it'll be really, really good to get started, but I'm more interested in a thing that is pretty good to get started, but is really good for long-term maintenance Mm -hmm. and um, abstracting over it in interesting ways. So, yeah, a lot of it's just come out of that. Uh, One of the big things I decided early on was that I was going to attempt to just disallow all forms of incorrect queries at compile time. So a lot nice. of it comes from, like, can I prove that this is correct? Because uh, it, it, it takes a lot more time, then, to to write a lot of these things once, you, once you're working. Not not to use diesel, but to make diesel. Because once I've said, I'm going to disallow incorrect queries, well, now I have to go prove that any, any correct queries are, in fact, correct.
1: Right. So how's that going?
0: Good. I mean, we have a... Uh, so we're at 0.5. Or I'm working on 0.5. Mm-hmm. Basically, the biggest thing that's missing from it right now. So, if you've looked at if you've looked at the API at all, it has a very kind of arel
1: esque. Yes, I did builder. take a look. Yeah, it does.
0: But there's a couple of interesting things to that uh, uh, that, that that make it different. Well, so I, mean, I mean, number one is just the fact that it actually has guarantees about what you're passing to it. We don't have a bunch of is a checks, but we do have uh, uh, which we do have way too much in ARL. Mm. Um, Right, but like if you try and do where integer column I- equals string value, mm-hmm. it will... Actually, the bad one is string column equals integer value. That will just fail to compile, Great. as opposed to MySQL, uh, which will dump your entire database. Because <laughs> okay. it decides to coerce the string to... The, even though it knows that the string column is a string, it decides, eh, I'm going to throw that information away. I'm going to coerce it to this integer over here, and wow. those strings will coerce to zero. It does that? Yeah.
1: Good to know. Good to know. <laughs> yeah. My <sequel's>
0: terrible. <laughs> oh,
1: man. Yeah, I haven't worked with my in a while. So I'm glad yeah. I never encountered that. Or if I did, I wasn't aware.
0: One of the other big things is just the way that we've structured the code. Like, all of this, um, because we're doing this in Rust, which doesn't incur runtime costs for its type system because it has no runtime. So what ends up happening is if you, if you uh, implement a trait, right, and you say, I take anything that implements this trait, well you end, and then you're calling methods from that trait. what's actually ending up happening is for every type that's passed into it by uh by default what what rust what the rust compiler will do is monomorphize that function so it'll create a copy of that function with the concrete type for every single different type it's called with
1: okay can you define monomorphize because I don't know that word
0: <laughs> right that that well that was the second half of it. it copy it just copies the function with the concrete type okay. So if I say, like, I can take this with, uh, if I have function foo that takes any type that is, uh that implements num, and I call it with an integer, and then I call it again with a float, and then I call it again with a double.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, what the compiler will do is it'll create a function that, I mean, it'll have a random name, but if we pretended it had a consistent name, it'd be like foo underscore integer. Mm-hmm. And then we go find everywhere that I called it with an integer and, re- and replace the call to foo with foo in- underscore integer. And then it'll do the same thing with float and the same thing with double. Got it. Um, and so what that means is that we don't, uh, we can then ahead of time know exactly the code that's going to get executed. The polymorphism is gone. And so all the costs that can come from polymorphism are gone, which means that the compiler is now free to inline this function and do any other optimizations it wants to. Mm Uh, and in particular, our query builder makes extensive, uh, use of what are called zero size types. And so a zero-sized type is very unique in that it is completely useless for anything at runtime. It has no data. It consumes no memory. You cannot do any operations with it. So when you can express uh, an idea effectively in entirely zero-sized types, you're essentially guaranteeing that any cost associated with passing that thing around won't be there at runtime. That sounds good. Um, And so because our entire query builder is built around this while it may look really high level and give a lot of and give a lot of type guarantees and be really nice for abstracting over and pulling out like what are the equivalent of active record scopes and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. What ends up happening is the uh, when, when you look at the optimized compiled code, it effectively compiles that whole thing down to a string literal. Okay. So you end up paying no cost for that that you is greater than if you just hand rolled some SQL.
1: Mm-hmm. That sounds just like. A nicer interface and less work than hand-rolling the SQL. Yes.
0: Yeah. Well, and then what gets really cool is that because I have all these type guarantees, at compile time, I can skip a bunch of checks in the deserialization process mm-hmm. that I would normally have to do at runtime, mm-hmm. um, which actually means if you compare diesel to idiomatic C, not like, not like if you wrote the most performant possible C, but if, if, if you looked at like how you would perform a SQL query in normal C, diesel will usually actually perform faster. Cause we can eliminate a lot of the checks that you would that you would normally do in your own code because not doing them. So like for example, since every query is unique and I know exactly the columns that are coming out of it, I don't ever have to go say in the result set, hey, what is the index of this column? I can always just know mm-hmm. oh, user's name is index zero. I don't have to go I don't have to do that additional step of, of finding uh, finding out which index the, the name column was. Mm-hmm. But that does not prevent my ability to use the same Rust code to deserialize uh, user struct from different types of queries with different orderings
1: right so it sounds like a huge value add that sorry that's such business jargon <laughs> a huge benefit of using diesel is not having to write a bunch of code to deal with different types right to, to put very simply like in plain very you know plain english yeah. yeah i
0: mean that's that right that's that's the that's the use case of an orm is it it sure. prevents you from having to write code to, to map your data to, to your objects.
1: Yep. Which is especially useful with a language like Rust.
0: Right. And so that's you know, how, how we deal with reads. Mm-hmm. Writes are a little bit more interesting, and they're a little bit more different than, than how uh, people might be, what people might be familiar with. Because we essentially set it up so that you, you have a struct that represents a, a series of changes that you would want to make. In the web world, this will probably end up being commonly codified into form objects. Yeah, form objects. And then what you can what you do is you implement a trait called as change set for that for that struct, which uh, with, we have a lot of code generators. So you just put a little annotation at the top of your class, and then we'll go generate as change set for you. And then what you can do is you can do a, a update whatever table you want to update dot set your change set. And then, so let's say you have this struct called user changes, or let's call it let's call it registration, not registration settings form, user settings form, something like that, mm-hmm. right? So, if you just wanted to ensure that the that the result, the query ran, or if you wanted to know how many rows you updated, you call the function execute on that. Um, or if you want to get out the results of the updates, you could call get result or get results if there were more than one row that you're expecting. And what you'll actually be able to get out is anything that can be deserialized from the result from the return type of that query. Mm-hmm. Which in this case, you know, will probably be user, but you can also change that to be whatever the heck you want um, just by changing the returning clause. Mm. Okay. Um, if you want to get different columns, and if you just want to deserialize it to a different type but have the same columns come out. It will do it correctly, but it'll prevent you from from trying to. It will prevent you from even trying to deserialize that into any type that it that doesn't fit into that row. Mm-hmm. That sounds cool. Or that that row doesn't fit into. Yeah. Anyway, so the big thing that that we're missing there there's a there's a I've got a roadmap now for 1.0, um, and the big thing that I want to do in the next release is figure out associations because we kind of sort yeah. of have something kind of crappy in our private API, but
1: I was looking at the open issues on Diesel, and that's one that stood out to me is. It seemed like pretty high priority, and like you've put a lot of thought into scoping the problem.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, the more I think about associations, it's the more I realize like we don't really need them—at least not in the heavyweight sense that associations from mm-hmm. Active Record imply. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, what's the what's the benefit of having associations?
0: Basically, the ability to eager load data.
1: And can that be achieved in some other way?
0: Uh, it depends on how. F- Far nested you want to you want to do it like I mean certainly it can be achieved in, in some other way by writing essentially exactly the code that we're going to write with the framework because mm, um, okay. if it wasn't possible to do it without the framework then the framework wouldn't be able to do it but once you get beyond uh, anything more than like I want a user in all of its posts, it becomes extremely painful and extremely difficult so if you had for example uh, i've got a user a user has many posts posts have many comments. Mm-hmm. Right, so if you want to get a user and all of its posts, and then you also want to get all of the comments for all of those posts, that one becomes just a nightmare to write by hand. Uh, and then the other in, uh, complicated one is if user also has many comments, like that, like comments belonging to a user, you know, like the user that made the comment. Yeah. Uh, and you want a user and all of the posts that they've written, and also all of the comments that they left on other posts. Yeah. That one's also difficult to write by hand because mm-hmm. uh, it's no longer representable as as just a single call to group by.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So that's that's. The, that's the main benefit, because when, when you're dealing with just single records, like, uh, basically, we generate a function called belonging to. So, there'll never be, like, user.posts. One of the, th- one of the other things I should mention is, is, in Diesel, the way we've handled associations is non-invasive. So, user doesn't know it has many posts. If you want to get a user and all of its posts, you'll get back a tuple of a user and all of its posts. Oh, cool. But you wouldn't have a user.posts. Mm-hmm. So they'll, it makes it effectively impossible to have an M plus one queries bug. Mm-hmm. You could certainly still load the posts with belonging to in a loop, but since you have to pass a connection object around, it becomes super obvious that you're doing a query in a loop. Mm-hmm. But so for single records, uh, you do post colon colon belonging to user, like passing in a user object. Yeah, that's nice. And and that handles just about everything other than eager loading. So eager loading is a big one. I see. And even then, for anything that's not a one-to-many association... Eager loading is just a join,
1: right? So, do you think? I don't know. It sounds like you're thinking you might not want to implement associations.
0: No, no, I do, but they'll just be very limited in scope. It will effectively it. be that. Be- it'll effectively be the ability to declare what, what associations exist. I do want the ability to compose them so that you can do things like has many through, because that's a useful mm-hmm. thing to have. Yeah. But it'll effectively be yeah that sort of composition, uh, the ability to eager load, and the belonging to function. Yep. And I think that'll be it, because that's really just about all you need.
1: Cool. What other features are high priority for you other than associations?
0: So that'll be 0.5, and then 0.6 is going to focus primarily on SQLite support. Okay. Uh, Because right now we only support Postgres.
1: Okay, I see.
0: And I was actually originally planning on just going all the way to 1.0 and only supporting Postgres, but somebody did make the point that SQLite is the only fully embedded database And for a language like Rust, it actually makes a lot of sense to Mm. support SQLite. So I I agreed to support for 1.0, mainly just because somebody had a more compelling argument than I prefer this database to Postgres, which is the only argument I've heard for my SQL. Right. So that'll that'll be 0.6. And then I'm probably going to finish my crates.io port and just let it sit for a month or two and sort of let the dust settle before before I pull the trigger on 1.0. But those are the only two features that I feel like we're missing right now. Cool. If you've tried using diesel and you think that there are other features that we're missing, please please let me know.
1: Uh I I haven't, but I will at the next uh, programming languages I've meaning to try but haven't gotten around to yet. Meetup I host, I'll try Rust. Yeah. I don't know if I'll get to diesel actually, but I'll at least try Rust.
0: Well, and, that, and that's the tricky thing is that we've effectively like there was a there was a post on the Rust subreddit asking about ORMs mm-hmm. the other day and like literally every reply i mentioned diesel. So i think we're, we're we're pretty well established in that space and the way that we that we go about growing our user base is actually by increasing rust's user base overall. Yeah. Um and effectively what we're trying to do is do for rust what rails did for ruby.
1: All right. That's very ambitious and exciting.
0: Yeah, very modest yeah.
1: goal. <laughs> I was yeah, I was going to ask with your your web framework Again, my assumption is that you're kind of building Rails for Rust, but
0: no. 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 Uh, in fact, for version 1.0, it's only going to support JSON APIs. Just because like, your business logic story is the same, regardless of whether you're building a full HTML serving app or a JSON API. But there's a lot of other problems that we can avoid solving by only supporting JSON for, uh, to start. But no, it's it, it's mostly built around canonicalizing the the concept of, of a resource and building everything on top of that.
1: Mm-hmm. Are, are there existing web frameworks for
0: Rust? Uh, there are, I don't know if I would call them frameworks, although I think they both say frameworks uh, framework on their readme. Um, there's iron and nickel, both of which are slimmed down versions of Sinatra.
1: Mm, okay, so why are you building a new one?
0: because I don't like either of those. And I, want, and I don't think that uh, the scope that either of those are trying to cover is something that is great for building web apps in. Okay. They're, you know, they're trying to target more of the like, I don't know if it's necessarily that we have differences in where we are trying to target. I just don't, I don't generally like the APIs that, that, that they've come up with. Mm-hmm. And neither of them focus as much on type safety as I would like.
1: Okay, I see. That makes sense. Yeah. Cool. So you're just starting with a JSON API and then going from there.
0: That'll be, that 1.0 will be that one point will effectively only support json apis, but uh like the general direction is basically if you assumed that if you imagined rails in a world where the routing dSL only had uh, resource and resources yep you know that's that's kind of the direction we 're heading yeah, and then we can make a ton of assumptions from that
1: yeah yeah that's there's a lot i don 't know
0: once I have the API more specifically codified I'll I'll be able to talk about it in more depth.
1: Yeah, it's very early days. I was like I have so many questions, but it's just like too early to Yeah. to be talking about the web framework. But yeah, you said another 5 or 6 months.
0: Yeah. And then uh diesel one of the other things that that I'm working on is a uh effectively minor internal thing, which is that we don't actually ever cache prepared statements right now. Mm-hmm. And so I want to start doing that. Now as I, and as I started going through it, I was looking at it and uh I started off doing it exactly like how we do it in Rails, which is you have an LRU cache, and then you um, to, to come up with the uh, prepared statement key, you build your SQL query, and then you hash the string. And then you use the result of that of that hash code to be your prepared statement name. Mm-hmm. And then check in the cache if it's already there. You just execute that with the bind params, and if not, then you create the new prepared statement. Um, and I started to realize with, with Diesel that uh, because our query builder... Is monomorphized. Like so mm-hmm. be, we don't have an AST, we have a concrete type.
1: Right. So would there be a different query with a different cache key effectively for each different type?
0: Right. But that's the thing, is that the type actually uniquely identifies the query. Okay. And I can get a unique identifier for that type without building the actual SQL query. Right. I can I I, uh, I can like just get a number that represents that type uniquely right, right. In, in the type system. Mm-hmm. And once I do that, this isn't. I, I, it's not just that our, our query DSL is effectively the same cost as a SQL string. It turns into our query builder becomes cheaper than if you had a SQL <laughs> string. That's awesome. Because <laughs> even if you don't have to construct the SQL string, even if it is truly a string literal, it's. You, if you want to use prepared statements, you still have to go through the process of hashing that string. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we literally just can like replace it with a number statically at compile time. Right. And then um, I just need to change our query builder to be two pass, because right now we collect the bind parameters and serialize those in the same pass that we are constructing the AST, or the the SQL from the AST. And so when I separate that into two passes so that I have one function I call to build up a SQL string, and then another function to call to only collect the bind parameters, that means that every single node that doesn't have a bind parameter, that function call gets optimized away. Because it'll inline it all. And so, right, like the the and node we'll say we'll we'll say go call it uh, on my left side and go call it on my right side but then it'll inline the left side and the right side and if the in inli- if the left side is just like select foo dot bar I don't know why this would be in it on an and but you know what I mean right <laughs> like something that ha- if if that if that side of the tree has no bind parameters then inlining the result of collecting all the bind parameters will be no code right and so then you'll just end up literally with uh, linear grab this bind parameter, grab this bind parameter, grab this bind parameter, grab this bind parameter. And we will always have to do the work of serializing the bind parameters. We can't not do that. But that effectively makes us theoretically as low cost as you could ever be to actually execute a SQL query. Because we just know the prepared statement and we do no work other than serializing the bind parameters. Mm -hmm. And so that's effectively what would would come out if you wrote a hyper-optimized, I know exactly the name of exactly this query and I've written my code in such a way that I have a unique... Thing for every query, and I've prepared all of my statements ahead of time. Like our code becomes a- a- after optimization becomes effectively the, the same ASM that you would, that would get generated if you wrote, to my knowledge, what is the most efficient possible way to execute a SQL query.
1: Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, that sounds so satisfying.
0: Yeah, so it'll be cool. So we got lots of stuff like that coming out, and then just the user base has started growing. There is uh, at least one company that I know of that's uh, using Diesel for an actual project. Oh, nice! Um, In production. I don't know if it's in production yet, but I mean, presumably the plan is for it to eventually be in production. Mm-hmm.
1: So it's who else is working on Diesel with you? Who are the other core contributors?
0: Uh, the other two uh, people who have given commit a- I've given commit—I've given three people commit access now.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mike Piccolo, who was uh, the the guy who randomly found the, re- the the repo before I had like been publicly saying, "Here's where it is. You should be trying to use this." Mm-hmm. Um, and then M. Casper, and he's, he's been contributing since pretty early on. And then Sam Fippin, who's on the RSpec core team, who's gotten really into Rust recently and is a good friend of mine.
1: Cool. How do you guys coordinate efforts?
0: We have a Gitter room. Okay. We also have a public Gitter room. If anybody wants to come hang out, we're pretty friendly. <laughs> we're happy to help you get started. Gitter.im slash sgriff diesel. Or Next. it's just in the readme.
1: <sighs> cool.
0: Yeah, and it's, I mean, I've been trying to do a good job of, like, every time I can think of something concrete and actionable that I'd like to do, opening an issue.
1: Yeah, yeah, I saw that. I was like, oh, all these issues are opened by Sean. (laughs)
0: Yeah.
1: But it means that
0: if you are interested in getting involved, like, there's a lot of concrete, actionable things that you can try and tackle.
1: Nice. Other than an implementation for associations.
0: Right. I mean... If you want to go for it, <laughs> that too might be cool to run the API by me that you're thinking before maybe before trying to implement it. But hey, if you want if you want to tackle that, by all means, have at it. <laughs> nice,
1: cool. Yeah. That's a lot of stuff. How's work? What are you doing at work? Rails. How's that?
0: Good. Uh, we're getting ready for five point to ship. Uh, we just had we just hit a big milestone with Action Cable where we have properly like adapterized it so it no longer depends on redis and we've also removed event machine as a dependency nice so we're, we are still deciding if we're going to ship beta 2 or not um the original plan was that we were going to try and ship uh rc1 on the first and then if there were no issues then do the final release on the 15th but because we've had such a big Overhaul of Action Cable. We were thinking we might do another beta to let people give that uh, get, try it out and get get a little bit more testing on it before we before we commit to an RC. Hmm. We also just aren't necessarily going to be ready for an RC. We still have forty open issues on the milestone. Hmm. But yeah, so that's been happening, and and uh, we're we, we've we've passed the feature freeze, so it's all just now fixing bugs that have come out of Beta One and any other outstanding bugs that that we had previously marked as release blockers. Yeah, so that's all going pretty well.
1: Sounds like a well-oiled machine.
0: Yeah, Uh, sure.
1: (laughs) Well, the way you talk about it, it does. (laughs) Cool. Well, I haven't really been doing anything very interesting, which is why I have a million questions for you, because (laughs) I I was... Yeah, I don't know. There, You know, the holidays and whatnot, and um, my client work has just mostly been writing this super standard Rails app, which is fine, but it's just like nothing particularly interesting just forms just writing forms (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 so it's nice to hear all about diesel and some about rails
0: yeah i mean rails is still a thing i I just have less interesting stuff to talk about with rails because it's mostly just issue triage at this point
1: yeah yeah for sure
0: Rails will start picking up again in a month or two, I think. Once once we ship 5.0 and I have a little bit of a cool-down period,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I've got some interesting stuff for 5.1. And then there's all of the changing our release process that we talked about in the in the episode with Yehuda Cats mm-hmm. that we're going to try and implement soon.
1: Awesome.
0: Okay, cool. So should we wrap up?
1: Yes. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm.
0: As always, if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes or share it with your friends.
1: If you have feedback for this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at underscore Bike Shed, email us at hosts at fm, or leave a comment for us on the website.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time.
1: <laughs> awesome.